0: Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Holstrup and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In today's episode, I'm talking to TV and film editor, Paolo Pandolfo. So what can you expect from today's Chinwag with Paolo? Well, you can expect a dog barking in the background. Uh, Apologies for that, that's my dog, Rudy. He is generally a legend, but does get a little bit irate when the postman comes to the door. Or indeed, an old lady walks past. So it only happens a couple of times, but it's a bit annoying. Um... Otherwise, my chat with Paulo, we talk about his journey from making films with his dad's VHS camcorder in Brazil to becoming an Emmy nominated editor on The Crown. Paulo has a particular love for everything to do with music and sound, so we dig into how he really uses music in his productions. So, for example, in the initial stages of The Crown, he will often uh, create temp scores using the composer's own music. Obviously, with The Crown, long-running series, a lot of themes have been developed and there's a lot of music to go on. Um, but seemingly, this is also common practice in new series as well, whereby the composer will provide music ahead of time so that the editor can temp it with their music rather than someone else's. Um, conversely, there's a show that Paolo worked on called Apple Tree Yard, where he had a bit more creative uh, freedom because the composer gave him the stems and allowed him to sort of get a bit more creative with with the music in that sense. So we dig into that. We talk about the importance and power of creative compatibility in a working relationship. We talk about the difference between cutting long form narrative versus cutting movie trailers, both things which Paolo has experience with, and I was interested to sort of know the nuances of that. We also discuss the pressure of working with someone looking over your shoulder, Uh, something that I can relate to from my time working producing artists. Sitting with somebody by your side was always a bit of a disconcerting prospect. We talk about Jurassic Park and Psycho, both movies which were seminal in Paolo's creative development. Um, And we also talk about Hollywood greats such as Gerard Butler, Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme. As ever, all the music that we discuss in the show is linked to in the show notes. And if you enjoy the podcast on a regular basis, I would be hugely grateful if you could pop on over to Apple Podcasts and just leave a rating and a review. It just helps the podcast reach as many peeps as pos. So without further ado, grab yourself a jammy dodger and a brew and let's talk to Paolo Pandolfo. Paolo is an Emmy-nominated TV and film editor. He's currently working on season five of The Crown, having previously worked on season three and four. His Emmy nomination was in the category for Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for a Drama Series. That was in 2021 for season four of The Crown. Other credits include the BBC series Dracula, The Origin by Andrew Cumming, Tin Star starring Tim Roth for Sky Atlantic, Les Miserables or Les Miserables as it's known up north and Apple Tree Yard. Paolo, thanks for joining me on St. Music Matters.
1: Hello, nice to be here.
0: First question I always ask everyone is, rewind to when you were about, you know, five, between five and ten years old or in that period, if someone had asked you what would you like to be when you grow up, what would you have replied
1: I would have replied that I would like to be making movies. I've have one of those. <laughs> I have one of those.
0: Not specifically editing, but making.
1: No, I mean, I very. I kind of. It wasn't long after that that I kind of realized that editing was a thing that I liked. But I was one of those lucky people that kind of knew from a very um, early age what they wanted to do. I mean, remember what happened to me was. Um, well, I'd love. I always loved watching movies. You know, I would watch and rewatch movies from from you know four or five years old and kind of say things to my parents you know ask they say things about plot lines and you know continuity things and things like that to my mom and dad and they would always find it really weird uh but when jurassic park came out i was around seven or eight i think and i remember seeing that in the cinema and just being completely blown away by what i was seeing and just thinking how do they do this and that's what i want to do and then i think it was the year after my dad uh, got a vhs camera just for the family you know and i kind of hijacked it and then i started making my own films and that's the kind of like the how it all began and then editing came from you know, VCR to VCR editing. So kind of very, very linear editing, play uh, play, records. I kind of discovered that all by myself around age 11, 12, and and did a bunch of that. And then uh, that's when the first kind of consumer friendly kind of, uh, you know, digital editing thing started coming out. And then, uh, which was uh, I was around fifteen, I think, when I got my first kind of uh, it was a, a premiere at the time.
0: And do you do you still harbour ambitions to um, to direct, or are you sort of happy just editing? Oh God,
1: no, <laughs> no. <laughs> that, what happened was, I mean, throughout my kind of you know childhood and then and then my teen years, I obviously. Wrote and, and shot and cut and directed all, all the films. And I got all my friends to act on them and all all those things like that. When I went to film school in Brazil, uh, that's when it sort of became real in a way that it wasn't before. As in, I had a set, you know, To I, I did a short film there and there was a set and a crew and all of that stuff. And I really didn't enjoy the dynamic of the pressure of, of actually being on set making the calls and stuff. So yeah. it was interesting when the thing started getting a little bit bigger rather than just a, a very kind of, uh, you know, spontaneous, uh, amateur kind of scenario. When it started getting a little bit more real, to to closer to what directing actually is in the life on set and stuff, I just quickly realized that the bit that I really loved was was what came afterwards was was the storytelling uh, that we did in a in a dark room with no other people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I completely I completely associate with that. It's a bit kind of similar to my journey. Like at one point I was out performing a lot, you know, as a singer songwriter and I kind of massively realized that hang on a minute, I much prefer being in a, a, a dark soundproof room on my own for large periods of time rather than being on stage in front of people and having the pressure of having to perform and all that sort of stuff. So Yeah, yeah I get you. Big time.
1: I mean it's funny because I mean the now You know, doing the type of stuff that I've been doing now, obviously there are uh, pressures, other kinds of pressures that come from different places. But I think what I always liked about editing, opposed to directing, is that you are... I think directing would depend on so many people and, I co- you know, a, a confluence of so many people and so many things going right in order for you to be able to get that one shot or that one chance to get that scene or whatever. That, for me, is an incredible source of of, of stress just to imagine that. In the, you know, in the edit, there are kind of other pressures, but I love the kind of the security and the comfort of, of having the space to kind of look at something and think about it and re imagine it and be you know without to a certain degree a clock ticking there's always clocks ticking because we always have that lines for everything as you know very well i'm sure but it's different yeah
0: i'm exactly the same it's like you you it sounds like you have you have time to sort of work with it to try things to redo it and to to rework it there's not quite that live live time pressure scenario that you would have if you're sort of you've got everyone in place you've got a limited amount of time a limited amount of light whatever that might be and you've got to get it done it's like "Ah, that's just too much give me a dark room where i can try things over and over again anytime
1: i know (laughs) yeah good
0: (laughs) um and you mentioned uh, you sort of, when you were younger the sort of certain films that you kind of rewatched over and over again. Can you remember what some of those were and what the sort of plot lines that you were picking apart were?
1: Well, I mean, I before any of that, just uh, when we moved to Canada, I lived with, I'm from Brazil originally. But my family, me and my brother, my sister, mom and dad, we moved to Toronto for about six months when I was five years old uh, because of uh, a work thing uh, for my dad. And it, there, it was when I kind of first got exposed to kind of VHS culture in the sense that, you know, you would, you would people would b- buy and own movies. Uh, that was in a culture in, in Brazil back in the 80s and early 90s. You didn't have, we didn't have the culture of uh, owning, you know, VHSs. DVDs didn't even exist, obviously. So it was there that, that, that started. It was all the, the Disney films. I remember, you know, the kind of... Little Mermaid was a big one that I kind of owned and watched so many times and kind of like fell in love with the idea of kind of watching stuff Um, so a lot of Disney I think at that age then uh, Jurassic Park was the one that really changed everything because Jurassic Park is the one that I started watching kind of obsessively the guy there was this was back in Brazil already and the guy who owned a local uh, video store imagine a local video store
0: <laughs> i know <laughs> renting yeah so something that some people will never ever get ever understand is the fact that you used to have to rewind a film
1: i know it's a, it's mad and it's like so this guy they had actually the, their store this little store was a video store you could rent films but and they also developed pictures So it was. all... I was like, "Jesus!" Thinking back on this, it's like this business model is like gone. (laughs) I don't even. I don't know what happened to that family, but (laughs) certainly not doing that anymore. Anyway, so that uh, I rented Jurassic Park so many times that the guy said to my parents, "I think you should buy it for for him because I think I've rented it something like over thirty times or something like this." I I stopped counting how many times I watched it when he was when he reached around forty-five, I think, and. I was obsessed with that film, completely obsessed, and that's when I started talking about the about the you know oh look the door of, the door of the car is open in that shot and is not on that one, so questioning the kind of the logic of things like this, but also completely n- not letting any of it destroy the you know the kind of how much I love the artifice of it, the magic of it, yeah, and it's a film that I, I still watch at least once or twice a year is like my absolute, yeah.
0: Well interestingly from a VFX point of view it was it was pretty groundbreaking wasn't it because I seem to think at the time when they started making it they had them um, was it Harryhausen the guy that used to sort of do the stop motion animation yes, yes. I think I think the story was that he was working on the you know on the dinosaurs and at the same time a couple of guys started messing around with I don't know the full story, but they started messing around with this sort of dinosaur and then they showed it to Steven Spielberg and Steven Spielberg went, whoa, what is yeah. this? And then from that moment on, it was kind of like almost the death of stop motion uh, sort of models because this sort of bro- broke the mold.
1: I mean, you see there's the, on the um, on the extras, on the Blu-ray, on the DVD and stuff, there's a bunch of documentaries about that because they actually ended up doing a bunch of the sequences. They did stop motion sequences for a bunch of stuff. Not the finished version, but like they planned it all. So, all, you know, the the... Um, uh velocity attack in the kitchen that you ha- that exists in animation form. i don't know if you've ever seen it that they did pre- like and it's almost shot by shot what ended up in the film but in kind of like very rudimentary stop animation stop motion yeah. animation. it's fantastic it's really really great amazing yeah it's really fun yeah
0: groundbreaking vfx um you mentioned so you're from brazil um what was the reaction from your parents when you sort of said you wanted to go to film school were they supportive of it or was there sort of a moment of like, what? Film school? Surely not.
1: They were really support. I mean, because it, could, because it was something that happened really organically, you know, throughout the years, I kind of had this interest for film and it, it started, you know, making my own film. So it was something that happened through... Uh, this long period of time. So it wasn't a surprise by the time, I mean, it's, by the time I had to actually make the call to do it, they, it was kind of obvious that that's what I was going to do. But in terms of, they always kind of were so supportive from the beginning. And thankfully, you know, we were come from a family that had the means to, to support the passion. And, you know, so help me buy a camera and help me buy editing equipment and, and things like this. And my mom is, a, uh, was an arts teacher. So had a creative kind of, um inclination anyway and my dad even though he was in the kind of the business world he's incredibly creative himself and always really believed in it they were a dream as as far as you know having people that support and believe in you know what you want to do really I'm, i'm very grateful
0: so you finished film school what what was the sort of path then from finishing film school to kind of where you are now
1: so I did a, a kind of short course in Brazil, which was two years, uh, rather than going to one of the biggest, the more uh, prestigious kind of universities. You have a couple there, which are normally four years. Uh, but instead, what I did was do two years on this kind of, being honest, not very good course, but because I had so much experience of of having done so much of my stuff i think i make the most out of it and then with the rest of the money and the time that i had i went to new york and i uh, went to um the new york film academy and did a couple of courses there so that was pretty cool so i was 20 when i did that and i i did uh one course that that was filmmaking so in general you kind of rotated between directing shooting editing uh, doing a bunch of stuff writing your own stuff sh- shooting on film which was very cool and then I did editing uh, after that uh, so that was amazing it was a great experience I then go went back to Brazil and find my way into post-production uh, through funnily enough someone who my mom had been the teacher of when she was an art teacher and this uh, person who Came to, became my boss and one of my closest friends now. It's called Aleca Zoladi, She was a post production supervisor, and had just done a City of God at that time, and had done a, you know really big Brazilian stuff was, and she I started working as her assistant and then stayed with her for about four or five years. And I wasn't cutting then, but I learned everything I could about post-production because I was always in the mixes and the grading and, you know, in and out of edit rooms and just learned so much, you know, and working on really big stuff, you know, working with, with all those, you know, Fernando Medellis and all those kind of really big guys um, through her, because of her. So, but after four or five years of doing that, which is ostensibly a kind of a, producing job as a desk job essentially really is more organizing everything i said look i've learned so much but i need to get involved creatively with stuff and then that's when i started looking up um mas that did editing and i looked all around and then i found the an fts course uh which is how i ended up in, in the uk uh but just thinking I would come and do a couple of years of the master's in editing. Cause I thought the the program was the best before editing is by far the best in the world really that I could find at least. And, and then came to the NFTS and then from the NFTS started working and then cut to this 11 years later, here I am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i' have Something I've always thought about the the national film and television school is that it's a great place to, to kind of tap into a, a really good network um and then presumably sort of that a lot of that network is based here in the UK. So it kind of makes sense to, and there's obviously a lot of sort of production goes on here as well. So
1: definitely, definitely for me, you know, my, my Paul, well, so you mentioned Andrew Cumming, who uh, I just cut the the film, the, the origin with the director lovely love the film called the origin. And he's someone who we who I met in film school and I, I did his short films there and we stayed in touch all these years and, and, it's kind of magical now to to be cutting his feature, you know. But even when I got my first kind of big break on, on TV all those years back, that was because of Lewis Arnold, who is another director who I worked with in film school. And he very quickly, out the back of, of graduating, got signed by an agent and then very quickly got Misfits, uh, the last season of Misfits, at the time, and then put me up for it. I didn't get it because I think the producers were terrified of two. You know, it's, it was his first TV thing and it would have been mine as well. So that didn't happen. I did all the prep and had a really good meeting and stuff, but didn't get it. But then his next thing was uh, a thing called Banana, which was written by Russell T. Davis. And he said, look, this is perfect for you. I really want, want to get you in the room again. And because he'd done Misfits, he had a little bit more say this time. And uh, you know Emily Fowler, who who produced it, and then Nicholas Schindler and Russell, who were execs, decided to take a chance on me and and gave me the job, and that changed my life.
0: There's a there's a fruit theme to what the things that you work on because you (laughs) did cucumber as well, didn't you? Cucumber (laughs) banana.
1: But it's because they were interlinked those two shows, right? So they were both written by by Russell. It was so
0: he's he's the one that's obsessed with fruit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was. A, there were shows about the gay uh, world, and uh, he'd read this article that compared, uh, that analyzed uh, the, the male erection from tofu, banana, and cucumber to different stages. <laughs> and he wrote this three TV shows cucumber. Uh, Sorry, Tofu being one that was online and it was kind of a documentary series. But Banana and Cucumber, they were both dramas. One was for E4 uh, and they were kind of like Story of the Week, kind of short films almost. uh, Which was Banana. And then airing straight after that was cucumber on channel four which had which was a long-running drama and banana heads uh, like a story of the week for the secondary characters of, of cucumber it was a really cool project all integrated and stuff It was really fantastic yeah amazing yeah
0: um and you sort of mentioned there as well that kind of like russell was obviously he's obviously a fan of what you did and same same with um andrew cummings is it a case within because i think within the within the music world i kind of often think there is a it's a case of finding a fan it's finding uh, someone who really likes what you do creatively because they can then sort of in a position to sort of um open doors i suppose D- does it kind of work that way in the editing world that people kind of really like what you do creatively and therefore sort of want to be want to work with you regularly the same way you know like Christopher Nolan always wants to work with Hans Zimmer and there's always sort of like creative partnerships where yeah. um, people just work well together is that the same with editing?
1: Oh I think very much so I mean in my case it has been uh, uh, after I started doing TV I started meeting people and you know the the good thing about TV is that the turnaround is a lot quicker than normally a, a film is so with I, on my first few years doing it, I think I, in like three or four years, I did six or seven dramas. It was like nonstop working because it was when the boon happened. That meant that I met so many people, and a lot of those people are people that I've worked with to still today. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so uh, Jessica Hobbs, for example, is someone who I'm working on The Crown at the moment, but we met uh maybe six or seven years ago doing apple tree yard that was the first job that we did together and we've worked together ever since i've caught every single thing that she's done as a director you know ever since i tend to go and do other things in between because obviously it takes longer for her her to you know to get projects off the ground and, and do her bit but we she always comes back to me and we have this and i think you're right it has to do about to do with with kind of really loving and understanding each other creatively. I adore what she does and, and and I think I interpret, I see what what she does and she sees what I do. And when you, when you find that, for example, I, you know, it's really, really, it's just really special. I, I love it. But it's not just jazz. I have Alice Troughton, for example, who I did Cucumber with, then did Ten Star, and now I'm about to do her first feature. We're sh- uh, shooting next month in March. So you know people that i've't known for years and and it's just great. I tend to as much as possible come back and work with the same people again uh if circumstances uh, allow because there is a um there's a shorthand in in doing that and 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 definitely admiration in, in, in what we we produce
0: absolutely and I suppose as well is like there's the creative kind of synergy and that you sort of understand each other creatively but um presumably there's there's just there's also a kind of like a personal it's almost like a relationship it's like you can work with lots of different people but it just works with other people and and if they enjoy working with you and it's an effortless process and they just know that you're going to deliver and you know that they're going to deliver that it's the sort of it just makes sense is the sort of chemistry i suppose
1: totally it's about trust as well isn't it i think Mm. you just get used to well, you try. You know, you trust what the other person's going to bring to the table, and you just, as I said, I think you really enjoy spending time together because you spend a lot of time together, and that's an important thing. You know, it, it's. I mean, I'm sure for you it's the same. If the people I'm, that you're doing stuff with, if you have that, yeah, I spend
0: a lot of time. I spend a lot of time with myself, so yeah, I've got to really like <laughs> myself.
1: No, but like, don't you collaborate often with the same kind of people?
0: Yeah, yeah. Although it's it's funny, like. um I think the way way that sort of the world of music differs is that um, certainly with a lot of stuff, the stuff that I've done for TV and with film, there's actually been not as much sitting in a room together. Um, A lot of it happens over Zoom or, you know, even by by email um, and things like that. And it's... um, The one difference is, I mean, I spent quite a while producing artists and obviously sort of sitting in a room with someone in that instance. Um, But weirdly, certainly when I'm creating... I much prefer to be on my own because uh, there's almost a burden of expectation when you have someone sitting next to you, which I found sort of, um, sort of quite quite difficult. Obviously, if it's my own material, then there's there's not the same sort of pressure, but when you're working with someone else's baby, so...
1: It is very hard. It is really difficult. I, I suppose with editing, there is... You sort of get a bit of both of those things because... And that's kind of what I love about it, you know, in a way. When, when they're shooting, you're we're doing what we call the assembly process. So it is just me and, you know, an assistant somewhere, uh, getting the material that they're shooting, getting it into the machine and then just having a go with no one really saying anything to you about how you should interpret it or cut it or not. So I get the chance to do a first cut or first pass of everything, watching the rushes and putting the, a cut together, uh, it's a really precious moment of getting to know what you have and kind of imprinting your take on whatever it is that the director shot. Uh, But then when they finish shooting, then this other stage begins, which is together in a room, then you're together re looking at everything again and reinvestigating and re auditioning takes and blah, blah, blah. And when you know the person, it's much more comfortable uh, going through that. But then there's yet another stage, which is when the showrunners or, you know, the producers and execs get involved. And that's the hardest, <laughs> I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Too many cooks spoiling the broth.
1: Yes. Like, and, oh,
0: yeah. Ten different opinions.
1: That's right. And, and, you know, and then I'd find more and more the, there's this tendency to actually sit in whilst you're trying things and and that's just a really uncomfortable feeling creates we have to do it you know it's kind of part of Mm. it it's part of it but it's i don't know somehow you seem to forget how to press all the buttons and what to do you know when when there's really important people in the room
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely it's like when there's red light syndrome isn't it once that red light goes on you know you're recording like even even some some really good singers just sort of turn to to jelly in that instance (laughs) And I remember once like so back in the day when I was doing the singer songwriter thing, you know, playing the same songs over and over again, I could get up on stage and play them, but there was one time we went into a radio studio, and essentially we were in a room, there was no one else there. there was a producer on the other side of some glass, but just knowing that when they pressed go that it was actually being broadcast on live radio just changed everything, and it was like, "Oh God, how many mistakes am I gonna make here
1: oh my god yeah this is It it is it really is I remember I had a uh viewing. It was, it was the first screening of a, of a, the first episode of a new show. Uh, I won't name names, but no, <laughs> I, <okay. laughs> I was with me the director there and we'd worked on it for weeks at that stage. And I pressed Blade and the exact producer, for about 40 seconds in, said, can you stop it? And he stopped and said, I can't hear the dialogue. I can't hear the dialogue. Can you just... Uh, make the dialogue louder or the music, uh, you know, lower, uh, quieter. And I was like, thank God, I'm very organized because on my timeline, actually I managed to do that with a few clicks because it was everything labeled and kind of organized. But it's a type of thing that you get in an absolute panic because everything is mixed, you you know. It's not as simple as... And then you just go there and I lowered the music by a few dBs, I can't remember what it was, and then just spent the rest of the... A screening p- praying that it played well and it ended up playing well but it was one of those moments that you're like fuck you know a screening i always say that a screening the episode is an hour long but it feels like four and a half hours it feels like you're watching two of the lord of the rig films back to back even though it's a <laughs> 45 minute thing yeah it's just it's a never ending well
0: I suppose from your point of view as well what was great in that instance is that whoever was listening had a problem with the audio It's like they's like okay cool that's not my department that's the, you know as long as you're happy with the visuals great yeah audio is rubbish yeah sack sack the dubbing mixer
1: no but it was the edit it was in the edit it was it was very much my responsibility because I I was the one you know doing the 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 sound mixing at that stage which I love to do and I it's I just absolutely adore working with music and sound and spend a lot of time doing it so You know, it was a bit hurtful.
0: (laughs) Under the skin. On the sort of projects that you're sort of working on at the moment, what kind of split is there in terms of sort of composed music versus, um, say, production music where you're kind of actively making choices about what music gets used
1: right so uh at the moment I'm in the season five of the Crown at the moment, and uh this is the third season that i'm doing uh third time with Martin Phipps writing the music cool. a brilliant composer, and with the Crown, what happened was because there are so many seasons of it, there's a backlog of of, of like a catalogue of of things that Martin has written for it throughout the years. He did the music uh has been doing the music from series three onwards. So there's quite a lot of themes and you know and and pieces that he's written throughout the years that we have access to this this you know long library and stems for all of those things so we in the crown it is really really rare that any music that isn't from our composer is used as score i like we don't intend tend to use temp music from other films or other composers in it. I think more and more, there's, there's uh, the more, the closer we get to kind of current times. uh, Peter Morgan, the uh, showrunner creator, uh, it's very keen to use uh, pop, commercial music, pop music. uh, You know, as part of the show, but it's very rarely used as core. It is normally kind of within a scene. you you start getting the influences, but that was a huge part of London. I don't know if you watched it, but last season, you know, obviously in the eighties and Diana coming in, music was a huge part of 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 kind of making that transition and and creating really interesting moments. I think you know just uh, of eighty hits playing in Buckingham Palace and things like this. Um, but a lot of it, a lot. With Martin, there's a lot of a lot of material that you can pull from when you're cutting, and at the same time, he's constantly writing new things for 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 the new season. And not to picture necessarily, but in the even before we started this year, he had a gave us about I think, eight or nine kind of themes that he'd been working on based on script. So not not picture or anything, but ideas that he was having, and that he would name you know he, he would like title them you would get an indication of where he was imagining that to go but he always said to me you know i didn't write this for that you can t- take this and 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 use it however you want he's always very open about that and 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 i think interesting things came from that you know come from yeah, yeah.
0: so it's I suppose in that, in that instance, he's then giving you pieces of music which, you know, whilst he may have had a specific scene in mind, you kind of then have free reign to go, actually, this this feels like it'd be really good um, in a different place and you get to kind of experiment and play around with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's super open to that and, and you know, sometimes it doesn't work, but other times it works or sometimes it's kind of a hybrid. It leads to an idea of uh, that actually doesn't quite fit here, but that's thematically, uh, instrumentation has to, you know, matches up with that other scene of this, uh, you know, and it's, it's ve- it's a really organic process, I think, uh, with, with him. Martin is really great. And, you know, in, in, in allowing, uh, space and creative input from, from the editors who want to have, you know, uh, so it's, yeah.
0: And what about like the origin then? So when you're sort of doing a, a, a feature, um, in that instance, are you putting in temp tracks init- to, uh, initially or Well,
1: so, so that was, yeah, on the origin was a little more of a mix. So Adam Janata, uh, Valsky, I think it's called, is surname I always, sorry, Adam, I, I always butcher your surname, but he's, in, he's an incredible composer as well. He did the music for Saint Mod, uh, who was also actually, uh, Produced by Oliver Kaspern, who did our, who produced our film as well, The Origin. So Adam gave us a bunch of themes as well that he'd worked on. And he he gave me a bin full of things, not not just with actual uh, food cues, but with drones and sounds and things that he'd been creating. Um, so I had all of that to kind of play with and use most of it from there. There was only a couple of moments in the film that... I we me and Andrew the director th- felt like we didn't quite have it yet in the material that he'd done for it. We didn't have the the kind of the what we needed or the range of colors that we needed to for specific sequences. And in that case, we ended up going back to 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 temp score for a ser- certain bits, and then. Yeah. But he wrote he wrote brilliant stuff to the the didn't mimic what was in there at all but just kind of had the same the same feeling and i mean the music is so cool the music in the film is really cool so the things that i'm more excited about yeah (laughs) well
0: that that's that's great that um that both sort of like the editor and director can um listen to something which is a completely new take on the temp track but the feeling is right and because it's obviously the old the old sort of saying goes that people become so directors become so married to the uh, to the temp music that anything that isn't kind of almost exactly the same as the temp music isn't, it's hard. isn't right. It's
1: really hard and you know there are moments that are hard and it's, I'm sure there are moments that there are certain cues that took longer for to get there because of that but Andrew was in the beginning Andrew was very even before we started cutting it or filming it, he said oh I'm very keen to not that not temp music is used because because of that he said I don't want to fall in love with anything and not achieve it you know yeah And I said, okay, that's fine. But in the beginning, I found that quite sort of quibbling as well. And I had to have a conversation with him and say, look, man, like, uh, I'm, it's also kind of now affecting the editing process, I think, because I'm scoring things, or I don't don't think we're exploring the full potential of something, what something I think can be, because I simply don't have in, you know, in in the things that were done for us yet. I just don't have it yet. Because it's, I mean, poor Adam can't write, you know, it's just really hard. You 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 write a bunch of stuff and then, but the, the, he wrote most of those things before the film even existed—a single frame of it. So he didn't even we didn't even know what the world of the film was, and this and our film is a film uh, set uh, forty three thousand years ago. So, huh. <laughs> so he had a challenge in itself, which was to try and find. Things that were interesting, but that didn't sound like instruments because obviously there wouldn't be instruments. And you know, things of the time, let's say. But obviously, so not exactly that. But you won't hear a piano in a film, or you know, or or a recognizable string or something like this. And that was really difficult to for to i imagine a really fun challenge too i mean you should talk to him about that that's a a great process because it's just a lot of flutes and you know really weird distorted sounds and voices and stuff it's it's quite interesting
0: yeah very cool and you mentioned a minute ago about how actually not not being able to put in a temp track or not being able to sort of put in music was actually you was actually problematic for you what was what was the problem and what was yeah, what was how was it holding you back? Was it in terms of sort of like in providing emotion or, or or rhythm, or what was it that was?
1: I think in the when I've the bits that I kind of felt that in the art specifically had to do with with rhythm. There were scenes that were more like action-y, Let's call them action scenes, okay? Or you know that had a kind of urgency of 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 of, of the threat because uh, it's, it's, it is a horror. And those were moments where we needed to kind of really push not just the suspense of of the threats at hand but the action of of more you know high stakes in specific moments and I think that that was the stuff that we had to kind of look us where to get during the process there was an um You know, I think there was an element of emotion as well. So towards the end of the film, when we're reaching certain emotional climaxes, it it was hard to find things that are emotional, but they're not traditional in the sense. So you can't recognize a violin or, or, or something playing, but you do want the effect of that. So he had some of it, a little bit of temp on things like this. Start to remember what it was that we use as temp. Uh
0: I think just a kick drum.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean we use we use a lot of stuff from It Comes at Night. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. I dunno, but he... So yeah, it was mostly for, for for action things, but there was one or two kind of more emotional character-driven moments that we felt like we needed to kind of underscore, and it wasn't quite there in the material that we had up until that point.
0: Um, you mentioned earlier as well um, Apple Tree Yard. Yeah. And you sort of said, you know, obviously, when we were chatting beforehand, that you had quite a lot of creative free reign on that because the composer delivered stems Um, and so within that then you sort of then you're you've kind of got license to kind of almost play I suppose almost like a music editor uh, role and have a bit more sort of creative control
1: yeah so the guy who did the music for that was a guy called Hafton E and he's uh, Danish I think and because of that he was he he lives out there he wasn't here so he would send a lot of stuff but I also think it's to do I mean I haven't worked with him since but I think he was just very very game to kind of to work with us that way that he was just compose a bunch of different themes and, and 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 flavors of things and send stems and he was quite happy for me to just really play around with them and he kept a lot of what is i mean obviously he re worked it all and and did it beautifully and and much more more sophisticated than what i you know presented in the cut but conceptually a lot of a lot of how we've kind of finished the cut in the offline was was still there still there in the episode which i'm really proud of uh mm. but that's you know it this i don't know that every composer would be waiting to to kind of play it like that i don't know you know
0: no like i have to say from my point of view it can be a du- double it can be a double-edged sword it's like sometimes i would love to bring, give stems and trust somebody to sort of almost kind of remix the track but depending on who's doing it sometimes it comes back and you just sort of like oh, God, no, what have they done? I suppose that's when you're talk- talking about the sort of final mix. It sounds like you were kind of like, you were then sort of going, hey, this is what we've got, and then he was sort of rescoring that scene as 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 you sort of sent it back. But-
1: that's right, that's right. But it's but for me, it's like, it's the same... Well, as an editor, the way that I look at it, it's kind of like the way that I look at sound as well, the relationship with sound. So I do a lot of sound design and I do a lot of stuff, but obviously I can't... Imp- the work that I produce in the offline is never going to be as sophisticated and uh, and of the quality of what an amazing sound designer is going to do to it. I see my job as an editor as creating a blueprint of what conceptually I see it as being, and that goes for the music and the sound and how they work together. And because because my work kind of, I think is very dependent on those two elements in order to work. Hmm. I try to spend a lot of time in it and then I'm really happy when I see the people who actually do those things take it and then you know elevate it and take it to the next level of how you actually do it I I never f- am f- presuming that what I did in the offline is going to stay as is but 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 I am always hoping that it will serve as a guide from a from a conceptual point of view of what the idea of why something is working emotionally or you know uh, has to do with how those three things kind of go together and, and I just really like being part of the, the this process I love going to the mix it's one of my favorite things
0: nice Do so you go to you go to these mix on a on a lot of the things you do do you
1: well I mean they don't a lot of times pay you're not booked for it to uh, you know depending on what the project is that you're doing but,
0: just turn up oh hello yeah
1: i mean they you know often you're on the next thing anyway so you don't yeah i don't i i don't usually have time to sit four or five days in the mix with, with something but what i try to do is kind of show up at the beginning in the middle and then just certainly go for a kind of a review screening and give my my opinions and notes and stuff uh but what mm-hmm. i do do is is uh be part of the spotting sessions both for music and sound and kind of talk very specifically and in detail about what the choices are that we made and why we made them you
0: know and do you think that is that quite a you is that quite unique for an editor in terms of like the interest and involvement you have in the sonics um and does that kind of give you a kind of unique perspective and approach do you think
1: see i don't know that it is because i mean I can, for me it it's the things are so connected that I can't even imagine how you can do be any other way really but I I I definitely know editors that kind of that I can see spend less time working on 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 music for perfecting a music card and stuff and that's just the you know the way that they work but I think I would be pressed to find an editor that is not really fascinated or that doesn't recognize the importance of those three elements working together. And it's not kind of tuned into it. I don't think, I think every editor is, it's just the difference is, I think how, how much you take it as a priority or how much you uh, kind of will spend time doing it because some people rightly sort of kind of see it as a, oh, you know, what you're doing is a, is a temp thing and it's, not gonna stay as it is and then so you know i'm gonna focus on on other things i don't know but what i'm finding is that more and more the, the like you know the showrunners and the execs and everyone that watches the the cuts of the film as it's being on the show as it's being made more and more people are expecting something closer to the finished product you know I think. Not a finished product, but like something that works, that has a quality, the technical quality to kind of really that they can engage with as much as possible. Do you find that as well?
0: I think so, yeah. I think the the age of the demo is kind of is gone. I mean I think even sort of famously, you know, Hollywood composers will will, you know, get a, pay an orchestra to play their, their demo cues just so it sounds as close to the real thing as possible. That, you know, there's obviously depends on what level you're at, but by by leaving anything to someone's imagination, it can be quite dangerous because you've, you're you relying on that person, being able to sort of see beyond the limitations that are in place. So actually, if you deliver something which is as close as possible to the final product, then they don't have to use their imagination. That puts them at ease and I think probably makes for a smoother running process. It's maybe. true.
1: It's, not, it's just a dangerous game to play for everyone because, I mean, I agree. And obviously, it's much more satisfactory when you do spend time on those details and... And work work things as best as they can, but the reality is that the time allowed to do it hasn't changed proportionally with the expectations i don't think so you know you're expected to <laughs> to kind of polish something and have it present on a, on a regular basis because you have you know constant constant viewings and screenings and stuff, and you don't necessarily have much more time than you would have uh, to do it.
0: I suppose the, 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 the digital age has probably been a bit of a game changer as well because there's obviously increased flexibility. So, you know, once upon a time, if, a, you know, say, for example, a commercial track had been mixed and the sort of record label listened to it, you know, to, to go back and remix it was a big job because you couldn't save the settings on an analog desk. It was basically once it had been mixed, that was the mix, and you would literally be going back and, and sort of remixing it again. And I suppose the same is is true of music now there's such you know we're no longer put sticking bits to get you like you were talking about earlier about VHS and sort of that linear editing process. You're not splicing pieces of tape together again now. So it's it's a much quicker process. So therefore I suppose people kind of know that and so therefore maybe go, okay well, you know, we'll keep um we keep changing things. I think I was check on one of the interviews I was talking to um I think it was Isabel Waller Bridge was talking about I think it was a Stanley Kubrick film. Um and he, he basically sort of went to the scoring session sort of two years into the making of... I don't know whether it was a clockwork all in orange. I think the composer's name was Andrew North. Um, and two years into the sort of the making of this film and the scoring, and he went to the sort of scoring session, and after the first cue or something, he sort of famously stopped him and went, does it all sound like this? Um, and it's sort of like, ah, oh, no, when you're sort of that far in, it's not like you, It's, it's not, as, not as easy to sort of go back and uh, re-record. At least if it's all on all MIDI, you can, and it's a demo stage, you can sort of turn it around and, and change it more quickly. But
1: um, Oh, but it's cool that you spoke to Isabel. We've worked together, actually. Uh, how
0: did you? What have you worked on?
1: We did the split together. Uh ah, okay. And actually cool. I think well I think we're about to work together again on, on, on a film. So she's lovely. She's really pretty ah, really great. Awesome, yeah she's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating chat I had with her. That should be out in a in a couple of weeks. Oh cool.
1: Gonna, um, gonna listen.
0: Yeah. Um so I mean we've talked a lot about your um successes, Paolo. I think something I'm always very interested in is um is the failures as well. <laughs> Just from the point of view of I always think those are the things that teach us the greatest lessons um what's sort of not necessarily a failure, but what's one of the sort of the biggest lessons or you know a really a really important lesson or really an important learning experience from your career which you think has been sort of pivotal in your development
1: uh I think you you i mean look you get every job you get a different one of thing in and somehow um I think I've learned in the last few years, I mean, I don't, it's hard to talk about specifically about, about what were the, the projects and situations, because it's, it's just, it wouldn't sound good, I don't think, for people, but I, but I've been in situations in the last, in, in the last few years where I've kind of had a feeling about something and then was too tempted to do it, to ended up, and ended up doing it, but didn't really feel feel like I like I didn't really believe in it really if I was honest and I've learning I think I've learned how to to trust that much more and to kind of
0: your intuit your intuition
1: intuition and yeah yeah and and uh, kind of emotional response to things and and um and also took to thankfully I'm in a position now where I'm uh, you know I'm able I'm I'm in a place where I can say oh I won't do this or maybe I'll wait for for the next thing or you know and So you worked very hard for many years in order to kind of get to this place and I I think it took me a while for kind of to kind of believe it to kind of say oh but I have to do this you know if someone's offering me this I'll have to do it and I I turned a, th- a few things down and then there was something that came my way that it was just too flashy to turn down and i did it and wish i hadn't so you know i learned something there so
0: yeah interesting it yeah it's it's almost something that comes with time and experience isn't it because when you're starting out you sort of think you have to take every single job that comes at you and as such you maybe end up doing jobs which you're not ideally suited for but as you become more experienced and probably confident as well you can then sort of I suppose you have to maybe go through it as well to actually start to understand what is and what isn't right. Um, But, um, yeah, saying saying no to work is something that's very difficult to do to begin with, but actually interestingly by saying no to things sometimes other opportunities come along which had you said yes to that thing you might have missed out on so
1: yeah that's right and it's like and the other thing is like in what I do a lot of a lot of the saying no or yes to things is based on the script that you get obviously it's not the only uh, aspect that you consider there's the people who are involved with it who's you know who the directors who are the producers where is it going to air who are the actors all that stuff but responding to a script that's something that I kind of I think had to learn and I am learning more and more because things just read very differently than what they end up being, you know, and every writer has a very different way of uh, of writing. Sometimes you're very seduced by the way something is written, but it doesn't... I don't know, it's hard to kind of judge it. I've, I've found it really difficult and, and I think I'm getting better at, at looking at something and going like, wait, but... I'm th- what is this really about? Or I'm missing this uh, the story element, or that doesn't work, or oh, I can see through this, or you know, knowing how to judge something on the page, I've, I find I found more of a challenge, and I still find it difficult, but I, but I think I'm getting better at the more things you you do. I think because yeah. definitely the, you, you yeah. get some experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think probably sometimes I watch watch a film and sort of go. Did the did the actor actually even bother reading the script for that? Because surely if they'd read that script, they wouldn't have agreed to do the film. It's like, it um, you know, both both goes both ways. I don't think Gerard Butler's read a script for about 10, 15 years.
1: No, he read. He must have read the one. Was the, 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 that the I've really enjoyed that that was the recent one with um You know, with the Olympus has fallen. No, 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 no. That it was like a, a one of those. How was it Greenway? Was it the, the I think it was like a meteor coming or something? But it was one like it was one of those ones. But it was really cool, actually. It was really how was it?
0: Cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certain actors where where I've just sort of got to a point where I sort of vowed I will never ever watch another film that they're in just because just because they they've just stopped reading scripts and they just stopped doing decent films. Like um, I don't know whether I should whether I should uh, <laughs> sort of name name. Although to be honest, I said that about Jason Statham, but I did end up watching. To be fair, I was—I just had COVID and I was in bed and I didn't have anything else to do, so I watched *Man*, uh, *Wrath of Man* or something, which is a new right, film. I Guy on, one, on right? Amazon Prime. Uh, it's basically—he's a—I won't go into the synopsis. It's—it's it's basically he has to shoot and kill lots of people, right? Um, and I actually quite enjoyed it um but i had had vow i hey i vow every time every single mission impossible i've watched mission impossible i love espionage films it's like my favorite sort of kind of genre film every mission impossible film i get to it and go god i'm never watching another mission impossible film again i'm glad i did though because i've watched all of them and actually but it was worth it for mission impossible fallout which i thought was amazing
1: so good so good i love that one as well
0: yeah (laughs) Um, so there's and there's another one coming out now so um they've set the bar pretty high so there's a lot to measure up to but it's funny how mission Impossible Fallout has made me forget about the other what is it five or six which I thought
1: were great Fallout was the sixth one I think yeah so yeah
0: was it six? Yeah. So there's a five, five turkeys before that, and then uh, <laughs> worth it for Fallout Six, uh, Mission Impossible Six.
1: That is good. You know, look, I, I've, I really believe in watching uh, all sorts of things and knowing what you're watching. Like that's the thing. Like, I, I've been accused of liking everything in the past. You know, by people, some people, usually film people, <laughs> but I don't take it as I take it as a compliment.
0: Have you become more discerning? Do you think?
1: I mean, what does discerning mean?
0: I think well, because so, when you said like you've been accused of liking everything, I think I was the same. Like I used to just watch anything and like most things, whereas I, f- I th- find increasingly well. So I increase. I'm increasingly harder to please. So my 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 reckoning is that I'm becoming more discerning rather than just becoming a sort of like a, a grumpy old bastard. I agree.
1: I, <laughs> and, I, I uh, agree with you. I think that's a really fair, a good assessment, and I that, that I subscribe to it as well. I definitely, <laughs> but I still, but I, <laughs> but I still enjoy watching things and like and also sorts of things and often will enjoy you know, like I'll go i well recently I watched uh uh The Power of the Dog on, on Netflix, the Jane Campion thing, which I absolutely adored, and then I think it was the day after I went to see Spider Man uh No Way Home and loved it as well and you know and that's fine, like you know you just have to know what, what you what you're getting yourself into. You don't have to like everything but you have to know how how to watch things. I do believe that.
0: Yeah, manage your expectations.
1: Yeah. You can't go in expecting you can 't go into a Jared Butler film, expecting you you're <laughs> <laughs> the same <laughs> that you expecting anything good okay. <laughs> yeah, <period>. yeah.
0: <laughs> sorry i'm I'm turning this into a Gerard butler bashing uh, <laughs> oh my podcast.
1: God getting a
0: taste I suppose I mean we're on the subjects of sort of t v and film, so uh, this is a good point. you mentioned earlier um city of God, which I'm glad you did because um that is probably one of my favorite films of all time it's definitely up there in my top three films of all time it it, it blew me away when i saw it and the way that it, the story the way it's put together the timeline but also the acting and the fact that they went into the favela and they just got ordinary sort of people and got them to to act it gave it a kind of a gritty rawness which i think i'd never really seen in in film before um what are some of the kind of sort of film i mean you mentioned Sp- you mentioned spider-man and um, so obviously there's, there's obviously a fanboy kind of side in terms of you like the marvel you know very much the same i kind of love the kind of those big action extravaganzas but then at the same time the sort of smaller maybe more outhouse but what are the certain sort of films you mentioned jurassic park as well as obviously had a huge impact on you are there some others that you can mention
1: yeah i mean well the city of god was one that was uh, also really influential for me because you know, being Brazilian as well, when I saw, I can't remember how old I was when that came out but I was so impressed by the quality of, of it when it came out, in terms of everything in terms of the acting but in, just in terms of how it looked and sounded and so it felt sophisticated, like uh, some other Brazilian films of the time just weren't, and I was very happy, very lucky to kind of then work with most of the people involved in that film a few years later. You know, as I said, I uh, led my uh, the post production supervisor, and then Fernando, I did films with him. Uh Daniel Hezenger, who cut City of God, uh, is a good friend of mine, and he's now a director, so it's like you know. But he he got nominated for an Oscar. I think he was maybe 26 or something like this for that film. <laughs> it's like, it's, just, it's pretty good. The guy is like, a, that was his first movie, by the way, as well. First film.
0: Wow. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. It's incredible.
1: But in the, the, the cinematographer size of Sardone as well, you know, it's, it's just a confluence of incredibly talented people making something really special. So I think I really hold that film as a landmark as well in terms of saying, wow, we're here in Brazil. We're making stuff of this quality for sure. Um, But going back, I think another kind of really important one for me was Psycho. I've watched that when I was very young, way too young to have watched that. And just just was so taken by it and so kind of fascinated by it. I I then kind of became really obsessed with, with horror and with you know the, the slasher films as well The were they were the, the kind of in a sense of with scream and all of that stuff and in in the mid 90s i kind of, it came from me already loving horror um because of psycho i think we, me and a friend watched it when my mom was away a weekend and my grandma was staying with us and let us watch it for some reason and i couldn't take a shower for months without being terrified <laughs> but it's amazing and I didn't, obviously didn't understand why it was so amazing but now looking back and rewatching it I mean no wonder I would love that you know look look at the editing in that film look at the use of score in that film look at that you know it just makes perfect sense that that's something that would be completely kind of mind-blowing for me at that stage uh, so Psycho definitely um, I think The Shining was a big one as well then David Fincher stuff. I remember really, really loving Fight Club. at the time that it came out, it was a film that I watched many times, and I thought it was transgressive, and you know, and just had very interesting use of techniques and stuff. I just kind of I love Fincher as a well, just in, in general. I think he has very few wrong uh, steps. I think I just find him really interesting. Um, and his horror,
0: because obviously you do do. There's a lot you do doing a lot of sort of drama sort of tv drama stuff is is kind of horror something that you're sort of interested in doing more of
1: it is i mean i did i just the, the origin of the film is which is not out yet but that's a horror but even then uh, i am definitely interested in doing and exploring i don't know that i would like to just go down that road though it's, it's i love the diversity of being able to do different things i wouldn't like to be pigeonholed i think sometimes people when you do genre stuff you at a risk of kind of always being hired to do the same kind of jobs and the same kind of films and stuff, and I wouldn't want that necessarily to happen because I like the diversity of it. I like of being able to do something like Dracula and then jump to the Crown, and then you know do something like The Origin and then go back to the Crown. You know, it's it's. I think it's there's something. Uh, creatively exciting for me about about that but definitely would love to do more horror you know more i don't know about slasher films which are you know i that's the stuff that i really loved when i was a, a teenager but like now i'm much more interested in doing my psychological horrors i would love to do stuff like the babadook for example i'd love to do stuff like the witch i'd love to do stuff like um ariaster stuff i think is fantastic hereditary in midsummer all that kind of stuff i'm really fascinated about i'd love to do one of those for example
0: yeah midsummer i watched um not that long ago and it was incredible I had to watch it in three sittings I couldn't sit through and watch the whole thing because it's so intense and made me feel so uneasy um, which you know is amazing It's
1: brilliant and like it all kind of during the day, most of it, eighty percent of it, or ninety percent during the daylight. That's the
0: thing; it's brilliant because it's inverted the trope, isn't it? The classic horror trope is it, at, you know, when it's dark and you can't see what's going on. Whereas this is sort of like constant daylight in northern Sweden in the mid, in the height of summer. There is it doesn't get dark, so yeah, it's very. And very it's clever. so
1: weird and the whole way through. You're like, ah, there's something really wrong with everything here. Yeah. And it's yeah, uh, yeah. I just really like I, li- I really like his work. I think it's a really interesting guy to watch. He has a new thing coming out. I, 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 I'd, I'd never like to know much about what the things are before I go to see. So I don't even know what the plot is, but I'm definitely getting a ticket to see whatever he puts up next because I really like it. Um, yeah,
0: it's interesting, isn't it? If you, if you know too much before going in, it can completely influence how you enjoy it. Um, like if you read a bad review about a film before seeing it, it will definitely. Yeah. take oh your I, I've never
1: yeah. read. Like I never listened to. I listen to movie podcasts and stuff, but I never listened to anyone talking about anything I haven't seen yet. I like trailers a lot, but I watch them once maybe, and then that's it. Because I, I used to cut. I did cut trailers for a bit as well after film school. Before I started doing long form. And he always was very fascinated about trailers and I think it's an incredible kind of art form in its own right. You know, my best friend is an incredible trailer editor. uh, But... I am the type of person that will remember a specific shot and will go, fuck, you know, he was he had the red t shirt in that moment, so that means that ah. um,
0: <laughs> this this has been your affliction ever since you were a five year old boy. You see things that no, other no, people no. don't see and you're, you you what you see something in the trailer which ends up being a spoiler. Really?
1: I know, but and the thing is like because I did my when I was at the NFTS, I did my dissertation on trailers and I talked to a lot of trailer uh makers but I also talked to the producers and you know the, the movie producers and stuff people who hire them to make the trailers and was just kind of always uh, like one of my concerns was always this oh how much do you reveal are you very worried about that and stuff And the reality, unless you're talking about Star Wars or something like this, that they obviously are meticulous to the frame or any of the Marvel stuff, you know, everyone's going to analyze everything. They don't really care. For the average film, it's like whatever is going to sell the film best, they're going to do it. and It doesn't matter if it's spoilery. That's the reality. Because what they found is that most people don't really care about that most people don't remember it well pub the public you know most people will watch something and go fuck that's amazing i go i want to go see that uh yeah. so
0: i do i care about that but i'm I'm probably quite old school
1: <laughs> i do too but it's like you know we're, we're, we're film people we're kind of like you know it's it's i'm talking about people who just have cinema as entertainment and that's it but you know uh,
0: obviously cutting long form versus cutting trailer what what sort of fundamental because I a lot of what I do at the moment is um, trailer music so I'm quite interested in you know how the approach is different for you as the editor when you're a long form versus sort of short form trailer
1: I mean really kind of implicitly different just, just based on the the well, the principles of it, when you're doing a, a long form something like that, my process, my creative process, as I was talking about the assembly and stuff is to go scene by scene and to uh, the way that you engage with when you're trying to assemble a scene together, or put it together, you get all the material, all the different takes for that one specific scene and for the drama of that scene and the uh, whatever that specific scene needs to work. You put all of your attention into that. So it's kind of like a really zoomed-in version of it. Whereas when you're doing a trailer, you are kind of looking at the micro version of, of what it is and I think looking at themes in it. And what I thought, for me, the uh, interesting thing about when I did trailers was being able to kind of reappropriate things that are in the film in a way... To kind of in a condensed condensed version that you need to do in order to do a trailer. So you might use you might combine two lines of dialogue that don't come together, or you might uh, use a shot to illustrate something that someone's doing that in the film actually doesn't mean that at all. But you know, and I find that exercise quite interesting. But it's very different from the the actual the mechanics of of uh, doing something long form or something that doesn't. You know that has more time to breathe. So
0: uh, there's a there's a lack of nuance in trailer. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, I think so. yeah.
1: So, certainly in the
0: music there is. I mean, it basically is the sort of like musical equivalent of beating someone round the head with a bat, um, getting them so excited that they just sort of have to go and see it immediately.
1: Do you do you, do you uh, do it? Do you compose a two picture though, or do you find like do you do trailer music uh, in general, and then people use that as they want? Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes from time to time, this custom stuff comes through. Um, but generally it's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of the sort of production music side of things. It's like just writing tracks. And then, I mean, it, it does happen as well that those tracks sometimes get chosen and then you have to then sort of go in and sort of edit them because they, they need a certain section for longer or whatever, but it, you know, if they loop it round, they're not going to kind of get the, the sort of ramp intention they want. But, um, so yeah, so that's, but it's normally, yeah, that's the starting point And then, um, But interestingly, I I get the impression in the trailer world that increasingly editors are kind of getting very, very creative musically with making trailers in that they are – they're basically almost rewriting, like, you know, in the same way that with Apple Tree Yard, you were working with stems and sort of putting stuff together. I think increasingly within sort of like trailer agencies that – The editors are doing the same that they're almost taking stems from different tracks and then they've got sound design stems and they're almost sort of building It's almost a unique piece of music um, Themselves and then it may be that sort of like a a music producer or composer comes in to sort of help tie it together But it just feels like editors are sort of getting really creative with that. um,
1: Yeah I mean certainly the the people that i worked close with uh, when I, I did about a year in a trailer company and and I mean, they were all incredibly talented music editors. It was kind of you sort of have to be to be a trailer editor because you do so much of 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 that. You shape it a lot of it. I learned loads from from watching their work actually with sound design and with music music editing. A lot of uh, I learned loads and loads and loads from from those guys. Definitely,
0: yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, so we talked a bit about the sort of visual side of things but what about music what can you sort of trace certain it could be film scores you you mentioned earlier um bernard herman in sort of psycho but um what about kind of other film composers or even bands and seminal albums in your life that have sort of influenced um you today
1: You you know you asked me about that i was trying to think about all my first kind of memories of 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 music and stuff and i remember uh being in the traveling with my parents and they would have in brazil the the it's we have talent available right the soap operas is a very big thing and they do one of the the, the records that sell the most throughout the decades were the the, the the soundtracks for those things and this is not score it's like compilation albums of what the all the kind of commercial tracks that they have in it and they sell loads and loads and loads. My parents had some of that stuff so I remember be, having the stuff in the car so like listening to uh, Frankie Valley for the first time like in a, in, a, in a you know in one of those compilations and then on the same one having uh, someone like Italo Veloso who's a, a I don't know if you know him but it's a really uh fantastic brazilian uh musician so you know very kind of mixed in the same kind of soundtrack getting a lot of uh, mixed things and i think that kind of echoes through my musical tastes uh, throughout I, do, I, I don't i never really had obsessions like about being a fanboy of a, of a band or of a particular style i kind of like uh just went to a phase of liking more kind of indie stuff, indie rock stuff when I was younger, but also love pop music. I don't know, it's like I don't it's very kind of generalized for me, I think.
0: Yeah. I don't know. So there's no kind of like that you never had a sort of a musical epiphany in the same way that you did with film like we say with Jurassic Park, for example? No. Something that made you go,
1: Whoa, what is this? I don't think so. I didn't really I didn't really know. Sorry, I know it's not very good for you. <laughs> no, it is. <fine. laughs> but I didn't really. It was. It was. I think the epiphany was is born to do with how I can use music or how that's that was the epiphany or like you know how to cut music or how to make music fit or how, you know. Hmm. Uh, it's more to about the, the use of of the music and the use of score rather than the the than as of it as a, as a, an expression form so much as, I mean, film was always, the film interview were always my, the thing that I, that I kind of went, that fascinated me and the thing that kind of spoke to me much more than music ever did. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Do you listen to music much now? I actually less and less. I don't know. It's, it's a shame, you know, I, beca- I think since podcasts became such a thing, it's that my commute, it used to be music and it's now like a podcast after podcast, starting cramming it in more and mm-hmm. more. Yeah, when I used to live in Brazil, I used to drive a lot as well. Um, and São Paulo is famous for its traffic. So I used to listen to a lot of music in traffic. and traffic. But that also went away here because I think, you know, it just, it's just my commutes became much more to do with the podcast and sort of listening to news or, or film stuff. It's a shame. I often want to reclaim that much more, but it's it's almost like a bit overwhelming the amount of stuff now. The you know.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think certainly my relationship with music changed when I started doing it professionally to the point where you know I don't really listen to music in my downtime anymore because I listen to music all day. In fact, I want absolute silence in my downtime, Um, but. Podcast, yes. Um, but I think as well, like, the thing with music is the way we consume music, it's much more we were talking about I was talking with Mike Holiday who's a, a an editor and we were talking about how you know you'll have a playlist of loads of different songs but quite often you, you don't even know who those songs are by it's not like you you have an album um, and sort of 10 songs by that sort of artist that you go through and you sort of listen to over and over again and you didn't go and buy it and you didn't look at the cover and so it's not sort of got this artwork imprinted in your in your mind it's just lots and lots of music which you listen to fleetingly and sometimes you go oh I like that but you don't engage with it in the same way so therefore it's Harder to remember. I draw the, uh, similar, similarly with them, um, I've got a Kindle and as such, at any given time, if someone says, what are you reading at the moment? I can't tell you the name of the book and I can't tell you who wrote it because yeah. I never see the front cover. So I just don't yeah,
1: know. Isn't that great? It is, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I was just home now for Christmas and I was looking through my old bedroom and I found one a case the hell maybe fifty or sixty CDs? It's like you want know, one of those really heavy ones and I remembered fuck you know you we, we used to travel with this because that's <laughs> what it was like disc man and you know it took a little bit. and that's and it had like you know, I you always used to put the little you know the the covers uh like behind the, the CDs in the thing and it really had a different flavor and I was going through that thing and it's hilarious because you have there was like <laughs> there was Green Day there, and then there was like a bunch of soundtracks, but there was also like fucking Christina Aguilera, and there was also like you know all this kind of stuff, and it's like all in the same thing, but still you had to you. It was a different relationship with it. You put an album and you listen to the album before. It's very different. As I said, now the Spotify thing is like a lot of playlists that I listen to was, are generated by them. Like it's not even my playlist. I haven't curated it as well. So it's like, oh, it's a, a mood one or whatever. And I have no idea what it is that i you're right, the, that I'm listening to. Yeah.
0: I suppose fundamentally as well is like you no longer own the music once upon a time you used to go out mm-hmm. and invest it's like you made a decision like okay if I'm going to if I'm going to put £10 down on this then I'm, I'm going to have to make sure it's the right thing whereas now it's just you're renting it you can, you can listen to it and then sort of disregard it immediately as well afterwards but
1: that's right but I do I'll tell you one thing I do miss from the last few years is gigs you know I've, that, that I've really missed going to a live show going to standing with people I'm really looking forward for that coming back.
0: Is that something that you've kind of done a lot in done a lot of in London? Is going to like live 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 music? Bands?
1: Yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff th- throughout the years. I've really, I mean, I've, one band that I we were talking about, bands that we like The Killers, itself, is a band that I really love to work off, and I think I've seen them about nine or ten times, and I always find it just so absolutely incredible. I've really missed that feeling of seeing a band that you love live. Yeah. And just looking around. Can you remember the last band you saw? I think, actually, the last one was Stevie Wonder in, wow. in Hyde, on Hyde Park. It would have been that July. Yeah. The, That's
0: a pretty epic gig.
1: That, if that was, was your
0: last if if you were to die and never see anyone ever again, then Stevie Wonder was a good way to go. I
1: know, it, no, it it was Lionel Richie and CV Wonder. That was quite cool. Oh. <laughs> very cool. That was very cool. Couple of legends. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I think that was the last one. Actually, it's a long time ago now because of fucking pandemic and everything. But it was it was July nineteen, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it's just yeah. We were saying off we were saying off off mic beforehand how. It's been ages and it just seems it's amazing how quickly it just becomes the norm um to not go to live music venues or not go out and about without face masks and yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. Hey well, Paolo, I mean, it's been um, amazing chatting to you. Um I'm so interesting to sort of find out about your journey and on, you know, all the sort of things that have influenced you on your way. Um gonna wrap up with first of all, um something i'm kind of obsessed with is obscure kind of music film related trivia do you have any 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 kind of sort of like amazing bits of um trivia or about music or film or or even editing that i
1: don't know i don't think i do you did mention that to me before but i don't know
0: (laughs) um familiar with the film predator yeah yeah do you know who was originally cast as the predator no Jean-Claude Van
1: Damme. <laughs> really.
0: Yeah. They even started shooting Jean-Jean-Claude Van Damme in the in this sort of predator suit um but it quickly became apparent that it wasn't working for um well, for starters, he's not very tall. Yeah, I was going to say he's so,
1: Not very menacing.
0: <laughs> no, I can't. I can't remember the name of the actor. He's he, he died, um, but the guy that actually played the predator is like near, he's like seven foot. He's something crazy. He's absolutely massive. So you know, huge difference in height. height. But there's um, a brilliant sort of out where they talk. They were talking sort of about behind the scenes, and apparently at the time, so Jean Claude Van damme was running around the jungle in this. Um, basically sort of weird pink alien suit and the reason it was pink is because obviously normally they'd do green screen but in the jungle you can't do that so they had to make it a color that wasn't sort of in the background so it was pink but jean-claude van damme couldn't understand why the alien was pink he didn't get that they were going to sort of like do the cgi over the top afterwards he was just like he was indignant that this is a ridiculous color and this (laughs) alien looks ridiculous (laughs)
1: Sounds very good
0: but yeah he never made the final cut. I think they had to reshoot the final third of the film and obviously there was a lot of the, the predator in that. And then, um, yeah, with... Well,
1: he, he, but he yeah. ended up doing well for himself, so... <laughs> hey, he's
0: done very well for himself, yeah. So I, fairly regularly, I um, when I stay in London, I stay over at a friend's house and uh, watch... We watch a, sort of like a ridiculously bad movie from the 80s and... Um, yeah, I mean, with Jean Claude Van Damme. There's so many to go on. Steven Seagal.
1: Oh, um, Steven Seagal was a classic. You know. I was growing up. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely classic. We watched Under Siege not that long no, ago. Wow, you know, which was wow. I need to both watch. wonderful and ridiculous in equal measure. Um, but actually, what was surprising about Under Siege is how good Tommy Jones is. Tommy Lee Jones is as the baddie. He he carries that film. He he's immense in it. Um, and either he improvised some of the dialogue or. Um, he just turned that dialogue into sort of absolute gold. But um, yeah, it's, uh, great. it's It's brilliant.
1: Do you know? I remembered something. Although you were saying, I watched the uh, because of the new Scream film that came out. I um, started watching the old ones, and I watched a, a, a documentary the other day about uh, behind the scenes of Scream three. And I don't know if you remember. In Scream three, Courtney Cox has a ridiculous like hairstyle with really short bangs. I don't know if you remember that.
0: I can't remember uh, that.
1: And, and they talked about it uh, on the thing. Actually, this wasn't in a documentary. This was in an interview that I've seen them do for the new film. But apparently, they only had one week for her, for the character. Because they didn't have a lot of money. And she they messed it up, essentially cutting it. And she had to kind of front it and just go for it and just do it because he was always. Un- I mean, you should go look up a picture of her in that film because it's like it's bizarre. And it was an accident, so there you go. It's a little bit of a oh, stupid trivia. There's a bit I, of it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Hey, I'm all about the stupid trivia. That's I live. I live. I live for it. Um, awesome. And then, so finally, a couple of quick fire questions for you. Uh, what is your favorite biscuit or cookie?
1: Oh God, uh, uh, chocolate chip chocolate chip
0: nice Um, what's a little known fact about Paulo that we don't we don't know
1: well I mean I don't know that this is an unknown fact but people always assume that I'm that I know everything and I'm good at football because I'm Brazilian and that is not the case whatsoever. So
0: <laughs> you don't even you don't even like football.
1: No, not at all. But I don't know if that qualifies as a known fact because uh, you know if you know me, you'll know that about me.
0: <laughs> okay, but the, the Brazilian nation might be up in arms that one of their own doesn't like That's football. Right. So yeah. that could be... people
1: say immediately, ah, oh, you know Ronaldo or whatever. You know, like yeah,
0: <laughs> <Are> you, who? <laughs> Never yeah. heard of him.
1: Um, what scares you? Ah. I think being ending up alone, like being an old person, alone. yeah yeah as 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 uh, someone who lives in a different country, you know country, my family far away is is I find that pretty scary, yeah,
0: no man i I feel you um and then finally, um what advice what one piece of advice would you give to your younger self
1: probably we will we'll, tell my younger self to trust who he was for, from an earlier age to just not so don't care so much about what people thought about me when I was younger I think yeah yeah
0: yeah definitely just be be real be you be true yeah yeah that's no, that's a that's a really nice poignant poignant note on which to leave <laughs> um Paolo, thanks so much for chatting, man. It's oh, been um, great, it's been man. amazing. It's really fun. And um, if people want to find you, where where do they go? Obviously, you'd have to give out your uh, your home address, but you know, online. Where's your? What's your digital abode, or Twitter uh, or Instagram?
1: I'm on Instagram at uh, peepandolfo. Uh, at peepandolfo. Yeah, and I'm
0: going to link to it in the show notes. So any music or any sort of films and things that we talked about, and all this, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. So oh, be, cool. Uh, are r- are available
1: uh, um, anywhere uh, else? If people want to check out my work, it's on on IMDb. Just, just search my my name just to see the things that I've done and uh, what I'm up for. I don't have a website at the moment. I've uh, uh, it's after I've started doing long form is a bit of a weird thing. You know. It's just a different kind of. You do know, Didn't feel like I needed that, that platform so much, but I. Yeah, but I. But if people want to follow well, well with the work and see what I'm up to, is just follow the IMDb.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, there's also there's the um, casarotto.co.uk as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, there's some links to all the stuff you've done.
1: That's right. That's there are my, my agents, yeah.
0: Awesome, mate. Well, hey, good luck with uh, with the rest of the crown um, and whatever other exciting uh, projects 2022 has in store. And, um, Thank we'll you very much. In.
1: And to you, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye
0: thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to i certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations and i genuinely hope you do too if you'd like to get in touch with the show then you can email me podcast at larkmusic.com LarPMusic.com is my digital abode and the home of the podcast is LARPmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast and sync music matters podcast is hyphenated thanks again for listening and until next time